Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25, hear now the word of our God. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired servant and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. You shall count seven weeks of the year of years, seven times seven years, so that at the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the, the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop, and you shall eat the old until the ninth year, when its crop arrives. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he has not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. 
As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses and the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses and the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. This is the word of the Lord. We've seen that the central question in the book of Leviticus is, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can enter the Holy of Holies? Who can come before God? And we see here in chapter 25 how this principle is being applied to the way that Israel thinks about time, not just in terms of the seven days of the week or even the, the feasts of the, throughout, we saw in chapter 23, but now the, the major structuring of time through the seven-year Sabbath cycles and the 50-year Jubilee cycles. Because the Sabbath is not just a weekly principle. It is a principle that structures all time for Israel. In Leviticus 25, the Sabbath is applied not only to weeks, but also to years and weeks of years. Just as the seventh day is the weekly day of rest, the seventh month is the annual month of rest, because that's the, 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 the day of atonement and then the Feast of Booths. And then the seventh year is a sabbatical year of rest. Uh, but it's worth noting that the way that you get to the Jubilee is not that it's the seventh seven, it's that it's the seven sevens plus one. The Jubilee is the 50th year. This is, in a sense you could say, the Jubilee is, this is, this is the ultimate year, uh, the ultimate Sabbath, and yet it occurs on the eighth year, or the seven times seven plus one, the 50th. This is to be a the first year of the new creation, as it were. Because when you think about seventh day, seventh month, seventh year, these sevenths winds up being, these are times of endings, the end of the week, the end of the harvest, and the cycle of harvests. But the Jubilee, the 50th year, is about new beginnings. Verses 1 through 7 set forth the principle of the sabbatical year, the Sabbath year. And the point of the Sabbath year is so that the land may have its rest. Think about that in verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. That may sound odd to us at first. Because we're used to sort of, well, but humanity is the pinnacle of creation, so shouldn't humanity... I mean, it's, about, it's, about, it's about humanity, right? No, God says the Sabbath year is about the land. For six years, Israel was to sow and reap, prune and gather. But in the seventh year, Israel is commanded to give the land rest. Now, when it says that, uh, that you shall not sow and reap and, and prune, etc., uh, you may, you may want, have wondered, well, but then it says the Sabbath of the land shall provide fruit, food for you. It's like, wait, so what does that mean? Well, it's that what you're not supposed to do is you're not supposed to go out and gather and collect and sort of, it's, you're not putting it into your barns and storing it up. You can eat it. That's fine. That's, that's what, it shall provide food for you. But it's not you're not to go through the ordinary sowing, reaping, 
gathering process. It's a sabbatical year for the land. It's a year of bounty without labor. In a sense, this is... This is a reminder of Eden, where man governed creation uh, without toil and sweat. But the sabbatical year is all part of this six plus one. For six years you toil and sweat, and on the seventh you rest and enjoy the fruits of the land. Now, of course, it's worth noting that Israel was, was not known for uh, faithful obedience to what God required. Uh, Indeed, Second Chronicles 36 tells us that God gave Judah over to the Babylonians in order to give the land its Sabbaths, which Israel had denied it. So, note, the exile comes in 587 B.C. and lasts for 70 years. So, if you have 70 years of where the land has rest, that's 70 Sabbath years that they, the land didn't get. That's, so th- if you think about it, 490 years, it, it, over a 490-year period, there, would be, there, there should have been 70 Sabbath years. So if you now get all of those 70 Sabbath years all jammed together in one package, what, what Chronicles is saying is there's at least 490 years where Israel hasn't been doing what they should have been doing. Well, okay, simple math of adding 587 to to 490 tells you that since the time of the judges, Israel hasn't been doing this. And if you think that they were doing well during the time of the judges, <laughs> yeah, God's not being extract, extremely literal in his 70 years here. Israel never really observed the Sabbath year. The Sabbath year had been given to them as a gift from God, and particularly had been given to the land as a gift from God. Because remember, What happened to the land when Adam and Eve fell? Cursed be the ground because of you, Adam and Eve. The ground is under a curse. And so God God thinks that the ground deserves some rest from from man's uh, usage, shall we say. But what happens if the land cannot rest? I mean, if the Sabbath year is a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, well, actually, uh, some of you may remember, some few of you may remember when, when we bought this property, the soil was utterly destroyed. Nothing grew here but a few weeds. After decades of over-farming, the only way this dirt could produce crops was by juicing it with massive quantities of fertilizer. And so when we first bought this property, it was, I mean, just the, 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 the land was destroyed. Now, 25 years later, it's mostly recovered. And there's, you know, it's, it's but if, yeah, when you go out there and you walk around, it's, it's still not in great shape. You know, this is where the principle of rotating crops and pasturing flocks and herds is important for sustainable farming. But at the heart of the whole idea of sustainable farming is the idea that the land belongs to God. We are stewards of creation, not masters. And when we forget this, we become plunderers of the land rather than stewards of the land. Now, the rest of the chapter focuses on the Jubilee, and verses 8 to 22 give us a a summary of of the basic principles of the Jubilee year. And first, 
the, the, the time of the Jubilee was the year after the seventh sabbatical year. So if you think about the way this would work, every seven years there's a, sabbat, a Sabbath year, and then after seven Sabbath years, so, this is, so now that means after you've just had a year where you haven't been out working in your fields, now you have the 50th year where it is also a Sabbath year. They refrain from sowing and reaping for two whole years. And you can hear in the, in the very way that God describes this, there's, there's questions about, how is this going to work, God? Are we really going to have enough food to live on for, if, if, if for two years we're not doing anything? And God promises that if you obey me, I will make sure that there is sufficient food in the sixth year. But this, the, this, the, the, the jubilee here begins, notice, on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, on the tenth day of the seventh month. And this is the day of fasting, the day when Israel would gather to lament and confess their sins and acknowledge their, their, their iniquities before God. When the trumpet would sound and liberty would be proclaimed to all the inhabitants of the land. So if the Sabbath, the Sabbath year was a year of rest, the Jubilee year is a year of redemption. The Sabbath year, like the Sabbath day, was a rest from ordinary labor. The Jubilee has an eschatological character that goes beyond the Sabbath year. Indeed, as soon as you see the eighth day aspect of the Jubilee, you should expect to see an eschatological point to this. And certainly that's what this whole idea of redemption is about. That's why God says that the Jubilee year shall be holy to you. And remember, just as God's holiness impels him to draw near to his people, so also we are to be holy as he is holy. As we draw near to him and to one another, the way that we live in the Jubilee year is, is we are called, this, this holy year is a year of, of release and redemption as we look out for one another not just for ourselves. Because in verse 13, it makes clear that the point of the Jubilee was the return of each man to his land. Since the property would revert to the original owner at the Jubilee, there is no permanent alienation of property. If If you just think about what's going on here, when God divided up the land in the days of Moses and Joshua. The land was allotted to each tribe, and then each tribe allotted it to each, each family within the tribe. And that, that land becomes your family's land for all future generations. Yeah. We're, we're used to a world in which, oh, yeah, hey, you know, I sell my property to whoever, and I'll never see it again, and my family will never know about it again, and there, there, there it goes. But when God gave Israel the land... He gave his people a portion. Each, each person, each family has their portion in the land. And there is no permanent alienation of land, of property. And so the price of the land, you can sell your land, but what you're selling is the number of harvests until the next, until the next jubilee. So if it's only 10 years until the jubilee, you know and he knows you're getting the land back in 10 years. So basically you're thinking of this as a rental. It's a 10-year rental of the land. And if it's, you know, if it's 40 years until the Jubilee, well then now that, that's a lot more valuable and so it'll be a hot higher price. So the price for the land is based upon the number of years until the Jubilee, verse 16. 
And God warns them, you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So remember, I'm the one who's in charge of this. So any transfer of property in under this system is temporary. You're not transferring land, you're transferring crops, harvests. You can sell the right to plant and harvest crops, but you cannot alienate the property permanently. Now, the third pr- principle is given in verses 18 to 22, where God promises that he would provide during the Jubilee. If Israel obeys God, then God will ensure that the produce of the sixth year will be sufficient for three years. Will you trust God to provide? Now, in our day, we don't have the same economic rules. The, the Jubilee doesn't apply to the modern world the same way that it did in Israel, in Moses' day. But we still are to trust God for his provision. But what is, what is God teaching Israel? And what is God teaching us? What are the principles of justice and fairness that God lays out for Moses that we should be thinking about here? Well, the first thing we need to see is that the land belongs to God. You know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God. I mean, If you think about what Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. His point is that everything belongs to God. If the Jubilee year is holy to God, then everything that grows in the Jubilee year is holy to God. But if it's holy, then why can anyone eat of it? Well, because, as we saw in chapter 23, the priests profane the Sabbath day and are guiltless. So, when the priests are doing their ordinary work on the Sabbath day, that's profaning because it's treating it as, it's their common work and they're doing it on the Sabbath. So, that profanes the day, but they are guiltless. Well, think about it. When do the priests enter their service? On the eighth day of their consecration? When do all Israelite boys enter the community of God's people? On the eighth day after their birth? When do all Israelites get to eat holy food? In the 50th year? In the ultimate 8th, 7 times 7 plus 1? And this is why redemption is so important to the year of Jubilee, because just as the 8th day is the beginning of something new, a boy being circumcised, entering the people of God, a priest being consecrated, beginning his service, for that matter, is now... 50, the 50th year, 7 times 7 plus 1, is the coming of a new creation. There is a new beginning. And what's the, the picture of that that God gives to Israel is, in the 50th year, we're, in a sense, we, you get a new start. I mean, if, so just think, think about why would you sell your land? Well, it's because things have gotten... Things have gotten tough. You're not going to sell your land if everything's going fine. You're only going to sell your land if something has happened and I can't provide for my family any other way. I need the money. I just can't. Usually usually you're going to keep your land and keep farming it and that's how you're going to feed your family. But something has happened and I can't do that. So what do I do? Well, I sell the next 30 harvests in order to feed my family now. Now, what's going to happen? I mean, this is, you think about 
the, the actually Elimelech did this in, this in the book of Ruth. Elimelech and Naomi, there's no bread, there's a famine. Well, what, what good is land if the crops won't grow? He can't feed his family. He's concerned for his little boys. And so he takes them to Moab because he hears there's bread there. And now, so he sells his land. And that's where, so how, how can Naomi get that land back when she comes back to Bethlehem? Well, she's going to need a redeemer. She's going to need someone who can redeem the land for her. Or, you know, she could wait till the Jubilee year, although... <laughs> Remember, Israel wasn't very good at Jubilee years. So we shouldn't assume that Israel was going to be, oh, yes, it's Jubilee year. You can have it back now. And also, uh, she's got no son. So without a son, she's not going to get the land back. Because without the seed, you're not going to be able to do anything with the land. So if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer, verse 25, shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. And this, this redemption, this buying back, is the task of the redeemer, sometimes called the kinsman redeemer. It's just one word in Hebrew, the gal. And in Exodus 6, the Lord had said that he would redeem Israel from Egypt with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, Moses praised God for redeeming his people because it's the same word, it's the same idea. Buying back, redeeming from trouble. But it's, it's really here in Leviticus 25 that we're, we're shown what redemption means because to redeem is to buy back from, from trouble, from difficulty, from affliction. Now, this is partly where thinking about, okay, why did God set it up this way? Why did Israel, why were they told you cannot permanently alienate property? Because the land belongs to God. God gives the land to each tribe and clan. They were to possess the land and they could not alienate it. And the Lord retains title to the land. And he says, you are strangers and sojourners with me. Think about what that means. We, we often think, ah, Israel had the, had the land, but New Testament Christians are aliens and strangers. But God says, this is how I want you to think, Israel. You are so, strangers and sojourners with me. And so if a brother becomes poor and he has to sell his land, then, oh, he, if, if he has a redeemer, the redeemer could redeem it. But if not he will at least be restored to his land at the Jubilee. Now, as we'll see in a moment, houses in walled cities were a special case. So it it really didn't matter who lived in the cities, but it does matter who lives on the land. Land and seed go together, and both the land and the seed belong to God. And it's particularly interesting to see that on the ultimate eighth year, on the 50th year, the land would be restored to the seed, to the, 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 the heir, that whatever mistakes you may have made, all is forgiven. You have a fresh start, a new beginning. The old is wiped away. Now, just think for a moment about what would be the economic effect of actually practicing this. If the Jubilee principle was carried out as written, 
there would never be a permanent underclass of landless poor in Israel. Oh, there'd always be a temporary underclass. Stuff happens. And part of the reason why you could sell harvests until the Jubilee is because, uh, help out over here, I get, disaster, famine, plague, death, uh, I need some help. So this is a way in which that you can help your neighbor who's in trouble by renting his land for however many years until the Jubilee. You, you give him the cash up front to be able to care for his family, and that lets him get started again. And then in the Jubilee, he gets it back, which means that now his family is able to rebuild. Um, and so in that sense... And then meanwhile, the neighbor who buys the property is able to use that property to improve his condition through the rental of your land. But that's also temporary. He cannot permanently enrich himself at your expense. To put it simply, where this law was enforced, there would never be any super wealthy people and there would never be any super poor people. Because every 50 years, everybody, it's, the playing field gets leveled out again. And it's explicitly designed for that purpose. And actually, it's worth, it's worth pointing out, this raises questions about how to design a, an equitable economic system in the present. I mean, we, there's no way to simply do a one-to-one correspondence of, oh, let's just, let's just do the Jubilee in modern America. Because part of it is uh, farmland just doesn't mean the same thing anymore. I'd, my hunch is very few, if any of you, would actually have any land that you could keep in the Jubilee year or, or get restored in the Jubilee year because most of us all live in houses and cities. And so therefore, uh, those, those you can alienate. So, but, so, that's, so to think about that, let's make sure we understand these special cases in verses 29 to 34. Because what's the distinction between a house and a walled city versus land? In the ancient world, a house in a walled city is valuable in certain ways. But it's, it's not essential for producing wealth. Wealth is produced by land. City houses may indicate status and influence, but you don't really generate wealth in a city house. You can't pasture an ox in your backyard. Oh wait, ancient houses didn't have backyards. For that matter, they didn't really have front yards either. Walled cities are tiny. The, the, uh, the ancient city of Samaria was smaller than our church property. It was, I believe, under six acres, and we have ten acres here. So the ancient city of Samaria, this, where, it, where Elisha has a house in the city of Samaria, that city was smaller than the church property. The whole city. I mean, that's just, cities are tiny. And so if, you know, if it, your house is just four walls and a roof, you open your front door and you're, you're liable to be run over by a donkey carrying a load up the street or dumping a load in the street. And so city houses could be redeemed, bought back for a year. But after that, no redemption and the Jubilee does not apply. So when the Jubilee comes, doesn't matter. Whoever lives there keeps their house except for the Levites. 
The Levites have no inheritance among the tribes of Israel except for the Levitical cities and their pasture lands. So Levites, Moses says, may always redeem their city houses and they always receive them back in the Jubilee. So, okay, what, what do we do with this? Because it doesn't translate neatly into the modern world. In the ancient world, give a man a piece of land and a donkey, and pretty soon he'll have a pretty fair chance of sustaining himself and his family. But the basic principle of the Jubilee year was that the means of production should be equitably redistributed every 50 years. Now, this is a very different principle than the redistribution of wealth that we hear about today. Because Moses does not talk about taking cash or crops or animals from the one who bought the land. Rather, he takes the land itself and returns it to the original heir. So if you're going to, if you're going to try to do this today, it would be like, okay, um, it's, it's not that you're going to tax the rich and give it to the poor. No, you're going to take the factory and, and, and give, it, give the factory to uh, the, people, the people who work in it. Might not be a bad idea. Um, but... The idea is that in the Jubilee, the family gets to try again. No one ever becomes permanently dispossessed. There's always a way out of poverty. If you can't afford to redeem the land now, wait a few years, you can redeem it in the Jubilee. You'll just wait to the Jubilee and it, it, it is returned to you. So the system prevents massive accumulation of wealth over generations because every 50 years, everybody's back to their original land. Now, again, we know that Israel did not do well at following this. Isaiah speaks of people adding field to field and warns that such actions are bringing judgment upon Israel. And, and yet, the prophets remember that God had said that they were supposed to do this. Ezekiel 46 makes reference to the year of liberty. The year of jubilee was, was remembered, even if not practiced, throughout Israel's history. And indeed, that's why we sang the song we did at the beginning of the service tonight, because Jesus proclaims the year of Jubilee in Luke 4, when he quotes from Isaiah 61, as he comes and says that he, that he has come to establish the year of liberty, the year of the Lord's favor. And it's important to recognize that what Jesus came to do is nothing less than bring the Jubilee. What Jesus did is, this, this is, this is, now the 50th year has dawned. He's, that's what he says. When he says, the, the, he, he's, he's making the proclamation that chapter 25 was supposed to come on the Day of Atonement, the 10th day of the 7th month, sounding the trumpet throughout the land. That's what Jesus is doing in the synagogue as he says, this, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am here to bring the year of Jubilee. Now, we cannot merely spiritualize this and ignore all the economic implications of the Jubilee because our Lord came to bring healing to soul and body. So I'll mention there are ways that, that this sort of principle has been applied and practiced in various communities. One of the best examples I've heard of is a program called Build Up in Birmingham, Alabama that provides a, a high school education as well as training in the trades. And at the end of a six-year program, a student has been helped, they helped build a house, or many houses, and one of the houses they helped build will now become their house. Now, 
and basically their their sweat equity becomes the down payment for their mortgage, and they'll they'll have mortgage payments to make. Uh, but also when they graduate, they've got a job working in construction, and they are part owner of a uh, rental property. So they wind up with because because of their work, they are able to build up their own sort of be able to establish something. And these students come from families that have lost everything. Uh, in some cases, they may have lost everything 250 years ago when they were t- taken into slavery. In other cases, it's more recent. But there's something still missing in that model. Because the Jubilee principle not only is on the basis, is, is, is working to provide for the one in need, the Jubilee principle also has an effect on the one who bought the land. He had to return it. And that's where trying to figure out how to do that in the modern world is a challenge. But I would suggest that the closest we come, and this is actually when you, when you look at economic history, uh, the Jubilee principle was self-consciously applied to uh, the inheritance tax. Because what is, what is the inheritance tax? Now, the federal inheritance tax only kicks in to, with the states over $12 million dollars. So the federal, the federal inheritance tax only affects those who have massive wealth. And uh, so if you think about it, the people with massive wealth have oftentimes profited from the misfortunes of others. Now remember, the law of Moses permits you to profit from the misfortunes of others. If your neighbor needs to sell his land, you are allowed to buy it but then make sure that he gets it back at the end. And that's where I would suggest that something like an inheritance tax is actually a way of applying the Jubilee principle. Because the Jubilee is not a perfect model, but actually, the more, I, the more I've looked into sort of legal and economic history, the more impressed I am with a lot of our of our, the, the, the sort of the, what were the principles that the, 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 the people who were establishing our, our tax laws were thinking about. Sometimes they're very explicitly thinking about biblical principles of how do we establish a way in which those who have profited from the misfortunes of others, how do they then return a portion in order to help those in need? Because you are helping the needy by buying them out, enabling them to survive the crisis, but returning the land, and that's, where the, the, that's why I, I like the build-up type of approach, because it's saying, how do we do this in a way that will give them sort of ownership and not just hand, give them cash? That's, that's, one of the, that's one of the challenges of, of which, because that's where in the Jubilee principle, the Jubilee is not just give them a handout. It's get them back on their land where they can actually be fruitful and multiply. But having insisted that we not merely spiritualize the Jubilee, we need to see that the spiritual principle of the Jubilee is the heart of the law. The spiritual principle of the Jubilee is redemption, being bought back. That redemption from sin is intimately connected with our redemption from misery. 
Jesus brings us into an inheritance that is far greater than any inheritance that this world has to offer because Jesus unites us to God himself. When Jesus says that the, the, the jubilee has come, that the new creation has dawned, your inheritance is not merely a piece of real estate. Your inheritance is God himself. And that's where what we have in Jesus is this, this is this is the reason why it connects with what we've seen so far. We saw a couple, a couple weeks ago in chapter 23, the connection between the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths, how the Day of Atonement, the great fast day, was fulfilled in Christ, in his us bring, making the once-for-all offering before God. And that is fulfilled in the once-for-all Feast of Booths, that is the wedding supper of the Lamb. Well, even so, the Jubilee is also a once-for-all jubilee. The acceptable year of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor, has dawned in Jesus Christ. And in a sense, that's why the, the jubilee principle is still a useful principle. But that's why the New Testament never says, and you now, you now need to keep doing exactly the way they did it in Moses' day, because the jubilee has dawned in Jesus. The return from bondage has come in Jesus. The redemption and restoration to fellowship with God, an inheritance that is God himself, this is what we have in Jesus. And therefore, the way that we treat one another and live bodily in this age should reflect the principles, even though the details of the law may not be as the same, work out in the same way. Well, let's ask God to help us in this. Father, we, we hear your word and we marvel at, at your great kindness to your people in, in giving them an economic system that was supposed to provide for a place where the poor would be cared for well and allowed to rebuild. And we thank you that you have shown us in your word how you called us to live before you. And Father, we, we pray that you would help us as, as, as we walk before you to have the same mind that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was one with you from all eternity, yet he did not consider equality with you a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, entering into our misery, entering into our curse, taking upon himself our alienation, so that through his death and resurrection, he might bring us to you. He might restore us to the year of the Lord's favor, that we might find in you our rock and our refuge, that we might have in you an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled, and imperishable, because you are ours forever, and we are yours. Thank you. And help us to live as as people of the jubilee help us to live as those who have who have who have this inheritance and can proclaim the, the glories of this inheritance to to those around us lord may may your kindness and your and your grace overflow in our hearts that that we might help those around us that we might bear witness to show them the glories of jesus that we might show them the way of your son our savior that we might live before you and before the watching world as those who have been made new through the blood of Christ. Lord, give us 
give us wisdom as we operate in our in our in our workplaces in our neighborhoods in our communities in our homes that in each place where you put us and in each conversation where you've placed us help us to to seek first the kingdom of christ and help us to to draw near to you to find our rest to find our peace to find our satisfaction in your son our savior and as we go to our rest this night we pray that you would that you would draw us near to yourself that you would Refresh us as your people. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.